Hello, listeners, and welcome to episode 12. I'm joined by me, Rory, again. And we also have a very special guest. We have Angelo Hill, fresh out of Florida, Miami. He's, he's traveled a long way to, to be with us, all, all the way from... Uh, all the way from Leighton. <laughs> all the way from Leighton. He's crossed the, the dangerous desert of Zone 1 and 2 to come back to Zone 3, but on the other side of London. He's avoided the Theresa May protesters on his way down to your house. <laughs> I love T-Dog. <laughs> T-Dog. Oh, don't well, 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 <laughs> T-Dog. That's awful, mate. <laughs> Well, uh, we'll, we'll you're, have... you're banned now. <laughs> you're, you're never allowed back. We'll, we'll, we'll have a chance to lay into her later on. Yeah. So uh, this episode, we're going to be talking about something that um, Angelo has, has studied in depth and wrote about. Um, and that is namely China and identity and how identity feeds into to politics of, of uh, Asia and of Chinese domestic and foreign policy uh, more specifically. Um, so, Angelo, how did you how did you become interested in China? Where where does this interest stem from? Yeah, so I got interested in China because I lived there for seven years, and the whole time I was there, and especially at the beginning, I was really shocked by how seemingly similar it was to you know living in London. How you know, in a big city, it's quite cosmopolitan and a lot of young people have the same values we have. However, when it comes to political identity, um, it's very, very different. It's very much your political identity is fused with your nationality as a Chinese person. And I was really interested in how that came to be and how that shapes their political outlook. Well, I mean, China is a unique country in the sense that it's obviously the largest country in the world, but it's also a very, very homogenous society, isn't it? I think, is it something like 98% of the people are Han Chinese? Um, they, I mean, they do have clearly a very, very strong sense of sense of identity and purpose, I guess. Um, but what interests me is how China's history um, impacts its, its um, politics today, both domestically and um from from our perspective, more um, it's foreign policy, and I wonder what you think are the main drives of that. Yeah, absolutely. I think when you have such a large portion of your population being made up of one ethnic group, you're you're going to have um, issues that we don't have in the UK or in the US, where you have all different. Um, groups of people coming together and identifying by shared ideals. Here they identify by a shared history, right? Because we're all one ethnic group. And what what that does is I think it allows everyone to identify with the same historical episodes, if you will, to create a, a shared history, but also a, a shared destiny. And what the... CCP, the Communist Party, has done is appropriated that really well to legitimize itself as the only person or the only entity um, qualified to rule modern China. I guess that is a really powerful tool for them, isn't it? I mean, that they are, in a sense, they are China. They, I mean, 
Go and cut that out. That's how they present themselves, they, though. Like, yeah. they are China. Yeah, mm-hmm. the, I, I mean, what I'm trying to say is there's, there's, there's no one else. There's no alternative to the people who could, re- at the moment, they say there's no alternatives um, to represent them. They embody ch- Chinese history. They embody the Chinese identity. Um, but then again, there are, there are opposition groups in China, aren't they? I mean, even if they're, you know... <laughs> basically non-existent there are there are you can there are um people standing in elections I, I remember reading a fact about china which i found kind kind of amazing which was um on average china has something like a hundred protests a day um but you don't really obviously you don't get to hear about them because of the the kind of ecology of the media over there um yeah, I mean, but, I've, I've seen some videos of some really, really large and violent yeah, protests it, and, and things that you wouldn't expect protests. to see. People, people throwing bricks at the police and mm-hmm. smashing them with poles. And I guess, as you say, because um, the output from China is so tightly controlled, we wouldn't see that. But I think it would be wrong to assume that the Chinese people are just lying down and, you know, listening to everything their government tells them. And they're not, they're not, they're not North Korea. They have access to you know they know when they're being taken for a ride <laughs> yeah and i think it's such a a western perspective to just think of chinese civil society as this extension of an authoritarian regime that doesn't express its opinions i think it it, it really really does but and this is where i have a problem with the way china's portrayed just because they protest and just because they you know, they express their opinions doesn't necessarily that they seek the same goal that we do. I think I think though that's interesting because from from a Western perspective, people often say, Well if they're not seeking the same things that we want to seek, then there's something wrong with them. You know, we have this we have this notion here in the West that why wouldn't you want, you know, X, Y, Z? Because that's normal, but if you have if you come from a completely different society. Yeah, but uh, I mean that's just western exceptionalism trying to impose themselves on other people look what it's gotten us orban in hungary people trying to restrict abortion rights in poland yeah and we don't need to talk about the more obvious ones in the u.s and the ones that almost got elected in france and the netherlands right i want to push back a bit against this idea that um people in china are protesting on a kind of idiosyncratic um kind of ideals that are different from us. I think um, if you actually look at some of the protests and and what people are fighting for, it's mainly, it's not necessarily political in the sense that they're fighting against the party per se, but it's things like turning their village or their town into, um, uh, you know, something else or or destroying large areas of land. Yeah, very local environmental issues, issues uh, but and... also related to labor and to work and to the kind of uh, ownership of land. So very basic kind of uh, work issues, which I, I think are issues here as well. Um, obviously, not in the same uh, same kind of vein as what's happening in China, but um, where where large numbers of villagers are being pushed off their land uh, because of urbanization, etc. But um, I think the, the, the kind of um, what people are striving for, security in their jobs uh, and, and uh, kind of secure income is something that is a global issue. It's not just a cultural specific thing to China. Absolutely. But 
what I found is that you can be protesting against uh, a new power plant being built in your town. You can be protesting against corrupt officials. However, the party has done such a good job in building a shared Chinese identity that that doesn't. It might endanger the corrupt officials at the lower level, but it doesn't endanger the top of the party because they have fused their legitimacy with that of the Chinese nation. So Xi Jinping is not the leader of, you know, the Chinese state. He is the leader of China yeah. and by extent Chinese people. Right. And I think they can protest about that. And, you know, that might um, delegitimize some of the lower level they, officials, but it doesn't delegitimize Xi Jinping just like it didn't affect Mao Zedong. Yeah, that's a really good point. Do you think that um, I remember reading, I think it was in Foreign Policy magazine or one of those kind of big foreign policy orientated magazines that um, China can't be considered as a nation state. It's more of a civilizational power. But after kind of hearing what you said, I feel like they're kind of just re reproducing this idea of what the party want you to think, which is like uh, Xi Jinping or the ruling party represents an extension of Chinese civilization. It's not it's not some it's something that is almost inevitable it's it's nothing that is like contingent on what has happened in history random events etc i don't know what you what you think about that yeah i mean i would agree i would say every every government teaches its own reading of history right um growing up in the us i'm sure the 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 history presented to us about the vietnam war was very different to the one that's presented in vietnam um so everyone presents their own reading of history and the party just happens to have used it to solidify its right to but rule. Don't you think that the party has succeeded, maybe not directly, but indirectly at least, in promoting this? And I think it, it does stem from a colonial idea of civil, Chinese civilization being kind of monolithic and leading to this kind of dictatorial rule whereby... Uh, one individual or one party has to rule Chinese civilization. It's not a nation state. It's not a civic body, per se. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, ever since the dynasties, it's not been a nation state, right? Because that incorporates um, Xinjiang with a large Hui uh, population. Uh, Tibet um, is obviously another ethnic minority that has been part of Chinese dynasties throughout um, throughout history. So yeah, there's 56 ethnic minorities within China, even though they make up a tiny percentage. But I, I would agree that they have used it to their advantage to to set themselves as, as a Chinese civilization rather than a nation state. But I'd be interested to hear from you having spent time in China. Um, obviously, the Chinese people play no part in choosing who leads them. And that could lead to, I guess, a sense of ambivalence to what, what the, the government does, what the state does because you know you can't really change it. But do, do you find that people were interested in, um, in, in politics in China? Do you feel that people were engaged, or do you feel people just kind of know there's not much they can do and sit back and let the government take charge? Uh, yeah, I think you're completely right. I, I, I think people don't uh, take as much of an interest um, as we would uh, here in the UK. Um, but then I would argue that Perhaps we go too far now, and we politicize. And, <laughs> no, and people, we, people are even making podcasts yeah, now, and, and, and we <laughs> and, and we politicize everything. Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, this is this, <laughs> sound, this sounds like a really bad thing to say, but sometimes 
I, I'm, I'm already I'm, disagreeing. With I, this. I'm thinking. <laughs> I'm thinking. I'm thinking Brexit here, and I'm thinking sometimes just <laughs> no. a little bit of authoritarianism. It's oh my people. I of course I don't believe this, but you know, the thing. Of the, course. Um, can you get out? <laughs> no, I think. I think. Um, a lot of Chinese, we can assume that, 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 that uh, like China, their system's bad and people hate it. A lot of people quite like the, the stability or the consistency that comes with a autocratic regime. Was, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I there's mean, obviously huge suppression of people's rights and right to a fair trial and all these things. But I think that, um, especially when they look perhaps to the West and see some of the people we've elected over here, I can actually think. I can actually imagine some Chinese kind of grinning to themselves and thinking, "Well, at least we don't have that." I mean, I think wasn't that the message in the yeah, Chinese think, newspapers yeah, the day after Trump was elected or was after like, Brexit? Because this I th- is what democracy brings you. I think it's very, it's very hard not to see some sort of enticement in. I mean, let's call it what it is—an authoritarian form of government because mm. it provides stability, like you said, but. I don't think the the party sees itself as authoritarian as much as it sees itself as a guardianship guardian kind of, of nation, model. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> guardian of the nation, um, uh, meritocracy, and the people have their best interests at heart. Having said that, is it completely wrong? I mean, people vote against their interests all the time. Yeah, I would argue that they've done so several times in recent history. Um, so I do think that people in, in China look at what happens in, in Europe and in North America and see those as examples of, you know, people voting against their own greater good and against their own stability. Obviously, the South China Sea is a, is a, a, big, uh, <laughs> a big bone of contention between China and the West, right? Absolutely, um, yeah. So... Could you explain perhaps a bit of the background of why China um, lays claim to this territory? Because for, for people like me who don't know much about the issue, you know, you look at a map and you look at where these territorial water claims extend to and you think that's absolutely ridiculous. Like that's, <laughs> that's fucking miles away. So, I mean, could you, could you give me some of the context of that? Of the yeah. almost, mean, as, almost as ridiculous as the UK having a territory in the middle of the Pacific. Yes, but, 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 yes, but... <laughs> The people want us there. <laughs> yeah, there's no people there anymore. They've all been fucking deported for or, a million years. <laughs> literally no. Yeah, but, but yeah, but you know, when when the UK does something, it's okay. But if it's China doing it, it's not. It's not right. So let's talk about China. Chinese communists are running over us globally. Ninety-eight percent of rare earth minerals that are used in all the silicon, all the electronics, everything. Controlled by them. Is that a strategic problem? There was a global deal in 79 to hand over our infrastructure to them. The globalists sold us out in a long term economic system to conquer us, but China wasn't supposed to, in the balance of power, ever leave its sphere of influence or dispute the South China Sea or Taiwan.
say, I'd say China's probably one of the only countries I can think of at the moment that's actually physically expanding its territory, even though it's water territory. But I'd, I'd, I'd like to know why, why, why they, why they lay claim to that much. What well, I think this is really interesting, if only because before I started researching it, I completely agreed with you. I looked at a map and I saw what this island is. I don't know, right next to Malaysia. What the fuck is Xi Jinping doing? Yeah, and. And this and this was something that started under Xi Jinping, was it? it wasn't no. no. So this, the claims go back to. It depends who you listen to, like which side. But the claims on the Chinese side go to the first um, map of the South China Sea, which was published by the nationalist government. So before the communist government mm. uh, came to power in nineteen forty-nine, Chiang Kai-shek. Yeah, exactly. Um, they published the first map of the South China Sea with the nine dash line, which is what we see every time you read an article of the South China Sea. And basically, the claim from the Chinese perspective is that Chinese fishermen have used these islands for hundreds of years and they're a part of China's territory, which <laughs> doesn't stand to international law, right? Yeah. Because that's not a permanent presence. Mm -hmm. um but then you see that the competing countries and china itself didn't really care about any of these features until natural resources were discovered in the mm. 1960s um which complicates the matter a little bit more so so that is the main driving force behind it it's access to resources not a sense of we're getting what's ours well i would argue that that's what started the the claims yeah the natural gas fields and the oil deposits within the region is what started the, the sort of uh drive to claim uh the territory for china and for the the other countries the rival countries but i think now it's become very much a sovereignty issue um, where the ccp cannot back down because it's claimed this territory as part of the chinese nation for decades and i, I guess China is doing this so aggressively because they know they can. I mean, there's no, apart from perhaps Japan, most of the countries from which they're taking or expanding into their territory, they can't really put up a fight, can they? And China always has the, the stick of saying, you know, if you make a fuss about this, then we kind of cut off trade links with you. So I know um, the previous Philippines administration was you know, very incensed by it, but now that's fallen by the wayside with their new glorious leader, Duterte, who's visited Beijing and kind of... Don't live Duterte. Yeah, so I mean, but do you see there being any more opposition to it? I mean, I know the US have done, you know, they've done uh, missions to sail through to, to demonstrate this international water and they've flown over and taken mm -hmm. satellite images, but apart from these kind of um, shows of, you know, not shows of force, but just reminders that uh, what they're doing is wrong, there's not really any way it can be stopped, is there? No, there isn't. But I also don't think China has a real interest in these features. I, I don't think China would, much like the US, go to war for a lot of these features. I think the mistake in how states have dealt with them uh, lies in the fact that it's been publicized so much. And I'll mm -hmm. give you an example. When the features were first claimed by China and the Philippines... Um, I believe it was in the 1970s. Every time the Philippines publicly claimed a feature, China basically responded by denouncing the claim and saying that it was a part of the Chinese nation. Mm. But the Philippines actually occupied 
several of the features, but neither confirmed nor denied that the army was on the features. And China didn't respond because China doesn't care about the features themselves. They care about the perception of them of themselves of the party preserving Chinese territorial territorial integrity. I mean. No matter what international law says, there's absolutely no way they could back down from this now, is there? I mean, that would be... If for them to just retreat and say, okay, guys, we'll, <laughs> we'll leave you alone, they, they just could not do that. Well, I mean, there's, there are a few scholars and, yeah, I mean, they are mainly Chinese, but that say that it would benefit these states more if they acknowledged Chinese interests in the region and then negotiated a settlement, which is kind of what Duterte has done, right? Yeah. It said, it hasn't said these are definitely Chinese features, but it said we recognize that you have an interest in the region and we'll now negotiate a settlement. And what's happened? Sanctions have come down. Chinese tourism mm. is flowing back. And, you know, I don't think China is going to build up an airstrip right next to the Philippines because it knows that the Philippines will have to respond. It doesn't matter how weak it is. It has, it has to respond. To. Yeah, yeah. So we've talked about China's... Uh growing territorial claims and we, all, we we obviously know about China's military might and its involvement in the new trade block its um, Silk Road policy um, I don't know if do you think this is another grand vision or do you think there's some merit to this Silk Road uh, mission they're on was it is it called One Belt One Road is that One Belt One Road and yeah. One Belt One Sea Sea lane, sea yeah. road, but yeah, they need to they need to have a little chat with their branding department. They can come yeah. up with, they can come up with a better name than that. Absolutely, <laughs> um, but again, it ties into Chinese identity, right? The fact yeah. that China was this great civilization yeah. that had the Silk Road spanning all the way to to Europe. I mean, I don't think it's going to work personally because I think they're investing a lot of money in projects that perhaps don't have the economic. Well, I know, I know they did. Um, there was the first train, wasn't there, which went from China to uh, the UK. Um, then I read they had to change, they had to move all the cargo onto different trains because all the track sizes are different. So, I think it's more of a, it's more of an imaging. It's, it's saying, look at us, we've transported something by train rather than actual infrastructure project. Is I mean, there it's will be purely, they're, they're, purely branding. Yeah, but I mean, they they will they will be making infrastructure investments, won't they? And they look like, what they're, they're doing, doing what they're doing in Africa, all the ports they've developed, so they can get more of their goods in. Mm. But I, I I wondered if you think it's it's you know actually going to increase trade, or if it's just a kind of China saying, look, we're here and we can get stuff all over the world. Well, I don't think it's necessarily going to increase trade because yeah, I mean, the train is actually quite a feat, right? Yeah, a train I mean, yeah. a train from China all the way to London. I mean, I'd rather fly, but yeah, it's a absolutely <laughs> yeah, that or the Trans Siberian. Oh, that'd be yeah. nice, yeah. Vodka Express. <laughs> <laughs> um, so you're absolutely right, but I don't think it's the tracks that are the problem. It's the cost that's the problem. Yeah. it costs two or three times as much as to ship something via container. So, and I think it's only marginally faster as well. I mean, there's a difference of but, a, a week well, or two. For well, me. the speeds are, if something's going to cost two or three times as much as to ship by sea, then you're just going to put it on a plane yeah. because there are two types of things, perishables and things that, things that are urgent and need to be there right away. And you're going to, you're going to fly them there. Mm. Um, these are usually high value items, right? Yeah. And then you have things that you can ship by container ship and can take, you know, a month or two to get there. So I think it's it's a grand vision. It's no doubt a vision that China has that 
it wants to expand its influence in Central Asia, especially. Um, but I don't necessarily think it's going to basically bear fruit as, a, as they see it. I think a lot of it is going to be wasted money. And if we look at the ways that China is expanding its influence, um, I'd say soft power, well, their, their use of soft power has risen exponentially in the past decade, especially if you look at places like Africa. Um, I'd like to get your sense on, do you, do you now think that China is up there with, with the US, um, the UK as a, as a kind of, I, I don't know, I mean, China, I, I, when I've looked at Chinese soft power, it's still not so much cultural, it's not people in Africa watching Chinese sitcoms and reading Chinese books, it's more, you know, it's, it's always linked to trade in some sense. Um, I'd, I'd like to see what you think about their kind of success in soft power. I think people do business with China because they have money. I think mm. people would rather do business with the US and with Europe. And I think if you had to choose you a think, friend... You think they'd rather? Yeah, I think yeah. if you had to choose a friend, you wouldn't choose China, but they have money. But, do you, but, but if you look at countries like um, Sudan, where... China will come in and they'll build a, a new railway and they'll build, you know, an airport with a proviso that we're going to fly our military jets and land them there. I mean, I think there's a lot of countries around the world who'd much rather deal with China because China has no questions asked, does it? They don't want any human rights um, advancements before any investments made, but they don't want all the kind of the add-ons that come with, you know, investment from the US or the UK. Yeah, so. but it also has no, there's no prestige link to it, right? And there's also no, or minimal local benefits to Chinese investment because they import everything. Yeah. Literally, they even import the workers to yeah. a lot of these sites. So they're, so they're using Chinese workers to build projects in. I mean, listen, China has money, but China has no real allies. That, that's actually a very good point. Yeah. I can't actually think of any allies China has. Because you're friends with China because of the money. That's quite sad, actually. <laughs> bit like myself. <laughs> Without well, the money. Do you, think, but do, do you think that's because so many people see them as a threat still? No matter how much they've tried to say that they're a peaceful power, they're not like the US. Do you think that it's kind of they can't quite be trusted. Yeah, I mean, I think potentially that's it, but I think it's... Well, China doesn't want allies, is it? <laughs> well, I mean, I think China is really, really desperate for allies, but nobody identifies with them. Mm. And so as good as they've been at branding Chinese identity to the Chinese nation or the Chinese public, they haven't done it elsewhere because the way they've done it to... The Chinese population is by dictating exactly what is taught and how it's taught, and you know I don't want to say indoctrination because mm -hmm. it's you know it, there's connotations to that word even though we're all indoctrinated by our public or by our education, but they have done it by teaching their reading of of events, whereas the U.S. it doesn't matter who's at the lead of the U.S. it doesn't matter who's leading the U.K. It doesn't matter if Europe is an economic crisis. They export culture all over the world. People crave to be there because mm. there's buy-in, right? People want to go there because they they believe in what we're selling, whether it's true or not. They believe yeah. in the ideals in the ideals we're selling. Yeah, and that that's not really affected by domestic issues, is it? I mean, the way you're viewed externally. Yeah. Um, I guess 
talking about China, we have to talk about President Trump and uh, the relationship between the US and China since the election. Um, do you think China would have been happier with a Clinton victory, or do you think that um, a Trump win is to their benefit? Because obviously Trump made a lot of um, noise in the campaign about China being a currency manipulator, China stealing jobs. I mean, I think every speech had reference to China, pretty much. Um, cut out um i think initially they probably would have been happier with hillary clinton but i think the way things have turned out they're probably happier with trump because yeah. it turns out all this currency manipulator um we're gonna renegotiate and rebalance everything with china has turned out to be nothing really they, you know. so, so in classic trump form he's you know he said it's another one of these things that he's banged on about and then since he's coming, since he's become president, it, just like lock her up. I mean, oh yeah, maybe we won't do that. Actually, you know, it's uh, people people voted for him with these expectations, which are you yeah. know, fast going. But I think, yeah, from from China's perspective, they they may have been worried during during the election, um, that or after the election that Trump's going to be a big thorn in their side. But so far, it seems to be quite cordial, hasn't it? Yeah, I mean, I think Xi Jinping's biggest worry is that he's going to start a nuclear war in North Korea. And I don't think he worries about that because it would be a rational decision. I think it's exactly because they don't think that Trump is a rational actor that he worries about that. Um, and you've seen uh, the Chinese foreign ministry trying to calm down tensions, calling for both sides to resolve things amicably or peacefully. Oh, they, they do love words like that, don't they? <laughs> yeah, I mean, it means nothing, does it? But do you think, as 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 individuals, think um, obviously it's very hard to get any real gauge on what kind of person President Xi is. But do you think that um, they're obviously both kind of macho men? Uh, do you think they that sitting down and talking uh, is beneficial? I mean, do you think that they can? They're the kind of people that can work together, or do you think they're just so culturally different, have such different views of the world that it's you know it's just going to there's going to be cordial but not friendly yeah but i don't think it's necessarily a bad thing i think they're talking about what can you do for me what can i do for you sort of thing yeah which is how international politics works which is why obama got so much negative press over how he did foreign policy right he was always talking about these ideals um that he believed in but at the end of the day foreign policy is about deal making so it might not be such a bad thing that they can sit down and say what can we agree not agree on? All right. On that note, um, should, should, we, we, should we, we sign out? Should we sign out? Okay. Um, yeah. Um, thank Angelo. Thank, thank you, for you Angelo, for for coming and talking to us. Um, I. I uh, we hope we, <laughs> we, 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 we I'm stuttering. Yeah. We hope the quality of this is better. <laughs> we'll, um, yeah. Oh yeah. We forgot to mention we got new equi equipment. Yeah. And we'll be doing we'll be doing a new episode every every week. Like, yeah. <laughs> when I say that. Every, every week in the run up to the uh, general elections. So, yeah. We uh, hope. Um, I'm calling out my homie Jazz. I hope he comes on the podcast. Um, bitch, come on. Thank you and good night. <laughs>
warmly welcomed by the vast majority of the coastal states, but secondly, is fully accepted by the Chinese. Time after time, is it, excuse me, is it fully accepted? Is my impression by their by their words, the Chinese. My impression is that they're scared, and this is what they're scared of: a noose of faces right around China. The United States is the world's biggest military power, with bases and missiles and ships covering every continent, every ocean. China is a threat to this dominance, says Washington. But who is the threat?